Welcome to the Leadership Well program to empower learning, leading, and living well. This program is produced and hosted by Natalie Butoh-Wills. Podcasts and information are available at the Leadership Well Center, www.leadershipwell.com. Today's guest is Dr. Artika Tyner, law professor and director of Center on Race, Leadership, and Social Justice. She's presented a TEDx talk on education for social change and authored several books, including the most recently released, The Inclusive Leader. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership Well podcast program. I'm your host, Natalie Butoh-Wills. In this program, we empower learning, leading, and living well. Our guest today is really all about that, and her passion, and her work, and her books. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Artika Tyner. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you today. One of the things I appreciate about you and we talked a little bit about is that you do have are able to connect what you're passionate about and what your work is and what you write about. And that's um, that's wonderful when somebody is able to do that and contribute in that way. So so let's start with that about your your passion. My passion is rooted in my own history, my own uh, legacy from which I've come. I'm from a community called Rondo, a historic African-American community that's in the heart of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So five generations of my family have lived and walked and played on this sacred land. And why I say sacred, because it really was a dream and the hope for many African-Americans as they migrated north, that they would buy their home, have access to good schools, they build their businesses. But unfortunately, Rondo's story is not a story in isolation. There are over a thousand cases now documented of racial removal across the United States. As we began to build freeways and highways, they often went right through the center of our communities. So for me, my awakening was what I was birthed into, a legacy of understanding what happened to my community in Rondo, a passion of wanting to understand the, the laws and the policies because I recognized that law is a language of power. So I was dedicated to becoming well-versed to be able to stand with my community in solidarity to protect their rights and bring forth change. So when I think about my work, it's in perfect alignment. It's just that I use a range of tools, whether it's writing children's books, doing a TEDx talk, lecturing at the podium, in a pool pit, wherever I am, I try to lift my voice for justice in meaningful ways. That's that's beautiful. And yes, there's a lot of power in the law, power in education, and power in 
in books and workshops and like you said various ways that you that you share that let's start with your 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 latest book so congratulations on inclusive leadership those are both very important and hot topics these days so when you think about inclusion what is that what does that mean to you Inclusion means, I know we talk about it oftentimes as belonging, being a part of the experience, and we look at it in the workplace. But inclusion for me personally transcends that definition. It really looks like creating the type of workplace, community, schoolhouse, the people's house, which is, you know, of course, the capital house that brings together the rich tapestry of America in some unique ways, bringing together the gifts and talents, the experiences, and fostering them. So when I think about inclusion, it's more than just experience of belonging, and maybe it's the lawyer in me as well. It's also about the laws and policies that help to create those atmospheres that truly folks can bring the type of talent and innovation to the table, which we need right now more than ever. Absolutely. And I know uh, historically, having been involved in, in diversity efforts really from long ago, whether it's in education or in corporate uh, I was glad to see the transition more to talking about inclusion and then more recently about belonging because it's really a, a progression. It's not just enough to have a diverse pool of people. It's also how do we work together, come together for people to feel like they can actually bring more of their whole, whole selves. So when we combine that, so with the idea of inclusion and leadership, so if we look at the second part of that, what does, what does leadership look like to you, mean to you? Leadership for me means more than just a name or a title or exercise of power. Truly what leadership means is a sense of purpose, a sense of a clear vision on the world that we wanna live in. I mean, based upon my cultural tradition, we are indebted to seven generations, those seven generations that will come after us. So as a leader and as someone who's passionate about the future and committed to the future, it's looking at, very strategically, how do we build and create right now and plant those seeds for a more just and inclusive society? So leaders come together with a shared vision. Leaders come together to establish partnerships, to engage in the type of problem solving that we need to address some of the complex social justice issues of our time. But they also do something that's often missed. They unleash their moral imagination to be able to see a world full of possibilities and to help create it in some meaningful ways, step by step. Moral imagination. I love that. I love that imagery of that. And, uh, you know, as somebody who who teaches classes in, in law and ethics or that we both do. And so oh, yeah, I often think about business ethics or ethics. And I love that idea, though, of moral imagination. So when you imagine that, or when you picture that, what does that look like to you? I borrow those words from John Dewey. Dr. Dewey talked about the power of education. I'm moving just from learning content or learning about a new idea or theoretical perspective, but the type of education that we would need to provide for our students where they both think critically and ethically simultaneously. That as the educator or as the leader, that you're not just directing someone, but you're facilitating a process that leads to lifelong learning and engagement. So as an educator, I'd be remiss not to talk about how to unleash our moral imagination, to see the world of possibilities. And we need it now more than ever. A lot of people have lost hope. 
Many of their days are filled with fear and despair. But if we really unleash our moral imagination, we then go into my own teaching mantra, that when we see a problem, we create a solution. That We don't get stuck at the problems, but that we can use the problems really as a catalyst to come together to think about what are those practical solutions. Well, you know, without even having rehearsed that or talked about that, it's interesting because my TEDx talk was innovate what's in your way. And so that was two years ago. And it was very much along those lines, the idea that how do we take challenges and problems and or turn those into opportunities or, or solutions. And we've seen in this past year how much our society really has has had to embrace that idea because of the just unimaginable challenges that that we faced as 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 a nation and as a as a world and i agree that is so important about imagining what's possible and focusing on solutions because otherwise it can get very discouraging to just keep staying in in the problem and keep staying in the uh, in the things that aren't going that aren't going well so you so you talk about education and that is so important because leaders, I, I do believe, are groomed or made, not not born. And, and education, of course, can take on many different ways and, and roles. And part of that is people in whether it's classes or individual learning or by modeling with each other. So speaking of your, your TED talk and along those lines, so education for social change. So what role do you see education playing in the area of inclusivity and the area of leadership? Education plays a critical role. As we think about the purpose of education and education for, at its origins, I teach in higher education, of course, we know that our original story was about education for the public good. How could we serve through our innovative practices, whether it was you know, our medical students that come up with a new solution to a pervasive medical issue or our engineering students who craft solutions to problems each and every day, that as we look at education and its role, we play a critical role in training and inspiring our students. And we also have to look back a bit. If we look at the history of young people, they've always been at the forefront of change in our society's history. At America's history, we have the young people in our recent history. We know of the dream defenders who stood up against Daniel Graham laws. We see the young people standing even yet today in solidarity for change and public safety and criminal justice provisions. So when I think about education, I know I'm positioned in higher education, but the same is true for K through 12. Are we providing our students with those skills to be able to come together, to be able to think together, and create together in meaningful ways. So that does put a strong responsibility on educators within their leadership roles to inspire the next generation of leaders right now. Yes, and young people, as you say, have played an important role. And so as we educate young people, they also educate us, I feel, and you feel that, uh, or you have experienced that as well as a, as a professor, that we all, we learn from each other. And, and you talk about this idea of seven generations, and it's just amazing to think about that. Like what, even trying to think about what's gonna happen next year or next generation seems, there's so many things that can happen and just thinking about what's, what could happen multiple generations from now is, um, well, that requires, I think, lots of, lots of good imagination. So speaking of youth or even K through 12, you have also, as you mentioned, uh, been involved in writing children's books. So can you share a little bit about 
that? Yes, we started with a book called Justice Makes a Difference, the story of Miss Freedom Fighter Esquire. And that book was really an answer to my own challenge. My students challenging me as well. If we are concerned about K through 12 education, what will you do? If we're concerned about mass incarceration, what will you do? So you are correct. My students are my greatest teacher. I have been blessed for the past 15 years to go on this journey of learning right along with them. So justice makes a difference is in direct response to a pervasive challenge that we're not talking about. The challenge that for far too many people, they learn how to read once in prison. Depending on which study you're looking at, 60 to 80% of the adult prison population is illiterate. 85% of the juvenile population in our juvenile detention facilities. So if you look at that, for me as a reality of as an attorney, oftentimes my clients learn how to read in prison. And you can't help but to think that that's truly a miscarriage of justice. How could someone even read the indictment against them? How could they help advocate for their basic due process, their basic rights, when they could not read or understand what was happening in the courtroom? So we see a problem. Instead of just saying, wow, all these things, you know, in the words of Marvin Gaye makes me want to holler. I decided to take action. And that action was manifested in the children's book. But truly, it was about raising awareness. I created a global campaign to raise awareness about this entry point into that tangled web of mass incarceration. And as a bit of a backdrop, the reality is America has about 5% of the world's population and nearly 20% of the world's prison population. In fact, if you look at the research from Michelle Alexander and that notion of race matters, we know that there are more African-American males under the control of the penal system than who were enslaved in the 1800s. So you see it disproportionately impacts communities of color. So I decided instead of just lamenting the problem or studying it, that I owed those seven generations again to do something. And I started with, of course, as an attorney, I wrote a case for justice. What I was looking for was to understand if I started to continue to see these challenges with so many of my clients not having just basic literacy skills, and seeing in my own community and nationally, the literacy gaps continue to grow. It was my time to ask some critical questions. So I started with the data, of course. When one in five of our nation's children are not reading at grade level, and if you're not reading at grade level by fourth grade, you're four times more likely to drop out of school. If you drop out of school, you're three and a half times more likely to be arrested in your lifetime. So with our Leaders or Readers campaign, we raised awareness about mass incarceration, the school to prison pipeline, but that wasn't enough for us. We wanted some durable solutions. So we, and I'm saying we, um, that's actually a few of my former students came along with me and we developed a nonprofit called Planting People Growing Justice Leadership Institute with a mission of promoting literacy and diversity in books. And clearly you can see why promoting literacy was important to us. But diversity in books was another piece of the puzzle that we had to advocate for. Because when we started our organization in 2017, the reality then became that there were very few books that even represented children of color as the main character or protagonist. In fact, you're more likely to find a book with a black dog or a black bear on the cover than with a main character that's a black boy or black girl. So with our Justice Makes a Difference book, 
we are not only seeking to promote literacy, we are seeking to create those mirrors for children of color to see themselves in the pages of our books, but also those windows for all children to have a cultural experience of being able to see the beauty of the rich tapestry that we have, to walk in each other's shoes and learn together. I'm learning so much from you just in this, uh, just in this short time. And it's interesting how the subtleties of sometimes what people don't realize, like for example, what we see in books and the images and the importance of literacy and how all of this can have a, a ripple effect. And by the things that you're doing and your nonprofit and the work that, you, that you're passionate about, that sometimes changing those, uh, those what are seemingly little things uh, early on in someone's life can actually really uh, shift somebody's future. Yes, the data shows us exactly that. Many of the challenges that we see that we call racial disparities, whether it's related to healthcare, education, poverty rates, these are cumulative issues. So we need a multifaceted approach to address the challenges in front of us. Mass incarceration, that's, that's an enormous issue that touches the lives of millions. So when we think about that, you could just give up and say the issue is too big to solve. Or you could think and step back strategically, and that's what we did. Our team stepped back and said, what are all those entry points into this tangled web, and what can we do? And we decided to roll up our sleeves and take action around the high correlation between illiteracy and future incarceration. There was a time years ago that I have volunteered and was teaching yoga in prison out, out west in Oregon, and I remember that it was really it pointed for me the feeling that there was really not much difference necessarily between myself and, and people that were in that situation or really the people that were inside versus people on the outside other than some life circumstances really and some yeah things that probably happened early on in, in someone's life and other than that had those things not happened and had other people really had some of those same circumstances they might be in a, in a similar situation so like you say it is cumulative and, and it does start early and there's so many different entry points like you say with whether it's education or literacy or or somebody having a role model or a mentor or or somebody that that cares and to help somebody on a different path and as you say too it affects that person however it also affects there's a ripple effect and that person affects so many people around them and then that affects their community and so it really does benefit everybody really to be on this uh, journey together as you say Agreed. Oftentimes, as an early educator and someone who is working in schools and mentoring, we talk about folks who are physically incarcerated, but then we also need the conversation about the children and the families. In fact, even Sesame Street responded to that with Elmo having a new friend named Alex and Alex having an incarcerated parent. So once again, millions of children have an incarcerated parent and are going through the process of grief and loss, but there's not training. As an educator, I was never trained to have that conversation or support a child that might be experiencing trauma or grief. So this is a holistic thing. Um, as we look at the tangle web of mass incarceration, it will require the attention of all of us, and it will require our dedication to bring forth change in some meaningful ways. We cannot incarcerate ourselves out of our social challenges. We cannot incarcerate ourselves out of our social challenges. I'm taking that in. Yes, because there are various ways that people can be incarcerated, right? I mean, they can be literally incarcerated. However, there are ways that, and even people who are able to make their way 
out of prison that still then have barriers uh, because of stereotypes and being able to gain employment and there's ways that people are maybe incarcerated or held back because of because of yeah various social issues so yes it's it's interesting to think about on various levels and as you say education of course such an important component of that so you also have been involved in the American Council on Education so we share about that Yes, my experience was in the fellowship program for ACE, and it focused specifically on preparing me to take on additional leadership roles. And in that particular piece, understanding more about higher education, the future of higher education, how to make it more accessible, because we have to think about cost, how to make it more accessible when we think about technology. And also, one of the presidents, college presidents that I had a chance to interview had a very compelling way of looking at higher education as well. It's one of the first colleges that I saw that was measuring their success by their ability to help first generation students, which included new immigrant students, students that are first in their family to attend college like myself, just in general, by the name first generation, of course. But she looked at this piece that was very intriguing. And I have to delve deeper into the research myself on looking at the ability to also measure not just that someone you know matriculated into the program and they are they've received a degree but also looking at this holistic piece that we're talking about community those future generations also measuring their social and their economic mobility because oftentimes we very quickly say well if everyone had an education equal access to a quality education we've resolved all the issues Yes, that's a critical piece of the puzzle. But once again, research shows once we get into durable solutions, sustainable solutions, research shows another component that even despite, and I'll use myself as a case study, earning a doctorate, a law degree, and a master's, so three terminal degrees, do I still face challenges and be able to access inclusion on leadership roles, access to the C-suite, access to board positions. So I want us to oftentimes, I challenge my students always, think critically and look at the data. So despite all of the lessons that we may learn about access to education, and we can pull out those role models and show them, we also need to change structures and systems. That way, as we're talking about inclusion, we can make sure when someone has the qualifications, that they have a chance for the leadership roles. I've been challenging even corporate leaders to think about many of them already have their succession plans written, not on paper, but in their mind. And if your mm. succession plan is only someone that looks like you, that shares your same music genre preferences, shares your same passion for golfing, have you really looked deep into your pool of talent? So I think it's time for us to ask some critical questions. Education is a core piece of the puzzle once again, but education has to couple itself with opportunity. So ACE really taught me how to look critically, once again, to the future and how higher education can go back to its origins again and really be that spark, really be that game changer for first generation students like me to create access and opportunity both simultaneously once I've obtained the education. Yes, it's something that we talk about in 
my classes in discussions is that, and, and I think that laws can be changed and have changed, and yet there's subtlety, a subtle bias. There's a unconscious bias, of course, as often talked about. And so it's a reality that if somebody has multiple resumes or considering multiple candidates, as, as much as people might think that they're objective about it, uh, people are subjective and, and it happens very quickly and it happens very subtly about what people prefer or who they prefer. And those opportunities, like as you say, that might be with networking or might be forming connections um, with people that then can lead to other opportunities or promotions. And so it's, it's definitely something to pay attention to because there can almost be a, a danger now in people thinking that the issues are solved because we have the laws that we do or because we have the awareness that we do. And yet there is so much, so much of this, again, that is, I think, uh, subjective or that it is uh, subconscious. And uh, so, yes, still being aware aware of that. And as you say, you know, yourself as, as an example. So you founded and are leading the Center on Race, Leadership and Social Justice, so bringing together some of these uh, important areas. So tell us about some of the work of the Center. Yes, our Center is at the University of St. Thomas School of Law, where I serve as a faculty member. And it focuses primarily on educating and inspiring our students to be the type of lawyer leaders that we've been talking about, who are willing to you know, think, act, and work. All for the common good is really a part of our mission. And that thinking is thinking critically, um, working skillfully. You're bringing all these pieces together on a toolbox that in many ways attorneys naturally have. But we oftentimes think they only come to play when we're in the courtroom. But the reality of it is that toolbox is versatile. And it also should be used, and I'll use this piece from Charles Hamilton Houston. We know him as a pioneering civil rights attorney who created the pathway for what we call today inclusion and by laying the groundwork for the case of Brown versus Board of Education. Although he did not live to see it, his mentee, Justice Thurgood Marshall, was able to argue the case. And we're all the direct beneficiaries of Charles Hamilton Houston's labor of love. But his quote that I'm referring to is that, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. Now, of course, you go, ouch, you don't want to be in that latter category. But the reality of it is that maybe if we're not careful, we could be missing opportunities to really inspire our students, equip them to go forth in this vision that Charles Hamilton Houston gave us, that the law is a vehicle and a tool to bring forth a realization of justice. So my goal in founding the center is to be able to bring my students and community to come together to understand what that social engineering looks like, to understand how they can be impactful, to ask those critical questions and to make a difference. So we focus primarily on two issues, education and criminal justice, on how we can make those terms, justice, freedom, equity, how do we make them come alive in some meaningful ways? So it happens both in the classroom and outside of the classroom through our programming and training. And last but not least, through our research. We also have worked on a number of different research projects from looking at the financial implication and the financial impact of mass incarceration on the African-American community, looking at the hidden sanctions, or they're oftentimes called civil uh, disabilities that are really hindering folks, whether it's access to the ballot box, access to jobs or even housing, 
collateral consequences. So we wrote an article about the connection between collateral consequences and the history and legacy of slavery. We just finished an article on the school to prison pipeline and how we can take practical strategies to address and end the school to prison pipeline through restorative justice. So it's giving you a sense of the flavor of the research that we bring forth as well, that we're serving also as a think tank to come together to think strategically on how to impact laws and policies for those long-term impactful changes that we need to bring forth to make our university's mission come alive around the common good. Because our mantra used to be on many of our uh, advertisements when I was a student, I'm also a Tommy myself, it was challenge yourself, change the world. I don't know of a better time to do that than right now. Absolutely, you're in the uh, right, right time and right place. and. I know when we met some years ago at uh, an ABA event, and I definitely resonated with the idea of lawyers as leaders. And it's something that years ago wasn't necessarily taught, and even still now is is a relatively newer subject area in law schools, the idea of leadership. And yet, whether intentionally or not, do serve in important leadership roles as you know, helping people during important times in their lives or whether they uh, oftentimes it's a pathway for people to go into public office, either locally or nationally or even the presidency. They serve as our judges. And and so certainly the more that we can groom and, and support law students and lawyers as leaders, that it really does impact our society as a whole. Agreed. I mean, the reality, you laid out the data. As lawyers, we are in key strategic roles. And even as we reflect on our experiences for law, law school, when we're law students, there's a still a certain set of parameters or deference that, that's given as soon as you say law. So here's a unique opportunity. I hope more law schools would join us in the sense of being very strategic on going beyond because my work was initially rejected. When I started talking about the power of lawyers as leaders in 2008, 2010, writing proposals for conferences, for books, blatant rejection. They said, no, sorry, that's a soft skill. And I continued, maybe I use my own lawyering skills on this, to build the case of why lawyers need vital leadership skills to be able to be what we're what we're commissioned to do. If you look at the ABA model rules, it talks about us being public citizens that ability to be impactful. And how can we do that when we don't have the training, the skills and the tools to assume this important role of lawyer's leader? That time to, around 2008, 2010 was kind of a pivotal time for me and focusing on some of these areas of passion. I'm thinking, oh, wow, had we known each other then, we, we definitely would have would have related and uh, kind of joined, <laughs> joined forces uh, earlier on. And as you say, it's also, uh, or I feel it's encouraging that even though earlier on when I used to see some of these things, now, fortunately, that uh, more of that is being brought to the forefront. And also the interconnection between these different areas, which to me makes sense, but you know, maybe back then people didn't necessarily see that. So the idea of lawyers, leadership, social justice, uh, education, really the uh, intersectionality between them that we both can relate to and have passion for. So with your with the current book, what would you say are some of the what are some of the key topics in that book? For the current book, The Inclusive Leader, I go through a four step process of introducing a leadership framework because this book is directly the answer for so many people who say we don't know what to do. 
We're trying our best. We mean well. Unfortunately, none of those statements translate into inclusion, nor the premise of the book that's the subtitle, Taking Intentional Action for Justice and Equity. It's really a, a bit of a perplexing piece for me, who someone who's worked in corporate, who's worked in higher education, nonprofit world, multiple different sectors. We measure our profits, we measure our margins, we look at marketing, we set some clear metrics. It's unfortunate that for diversity, equity, inclusion, oftentimes we don't take that same process, that same intentionality. So the book, one of the highlights is introducing for the first time my leadership framework for action. And it provides four stages of learning. The first one is the intrapersonal piece. That's about you and I. It's engaging in self-discovery. It's begging that question of what's shaped your cultural identity? What's shaped your understanding of race? Who are you? What's your background? And uncovering, you talked about it earlier, some of the biases, stereotypes, and prejudice that we might hold in our heart, but we have not critically examined or uprooted Next is the interpersonal piece. That's looking at building authentic relationships with others. It's challenging some of the stereotypes that play out in the workplace through stereotype threat, through some of the microaggressions that we see. And oftentimes we mislabel them as microaggressions and they're really micro insults, micro invalidations. So we wanna make sure we get our language correct on some of these issues as well to address issues at the root. And oftentimes this is just a sidebar, I did not cover this extensively in the book, but we also want to make sure that we are using the appropriate laws and policies because I've seen too many times that someone has called something biased and by law, the organization has had a practice of racial discrimination, for example. So we wanna make sure that as we're going into the organizational piece, that third layer, that we are following the appropriate laws and policies, that we are establishing strategic outcomes and thinking about what are some of the strategies that we use specifically on promoting equity, so I talk about it in the context of education, setting clear benchmarks, using clear tools and consistency and policies to ensure that we're reaching a clear, articulable goal around inclusion. So here's a quick one. I think this is an important one that oftentimes still surprises me. I routinely get the data from Lean In about pay parity for women. So for instance, an African-American female like myself, we are in 2021, my pay parity day would be in 2022 in the summer. For a Latina, the pay parity day would not be in 2021 either. It would be in November of 2022. So now that we have the data, we have information more accessible, why have we not manifested change in some tangible ways? So this section of the book gives some clear areas where we can bring forth change, not that seven generations out, but right now, in addition, the societal piece looks at many of the issues that we talked about today. It's looking at how do we build and strengthen the social fabric of our nation? What strategies do we need to really make a difference block by block, community by community, state by state for our United States of America? How refreshing, how uh, useful, how important really that uh, this is something that addresses and that provides solutions because there is so much out there that talks about the problems and challenges and sounds like a, a practical, really a, a way of addressing uh, some of those. So uh, where can people find your book? My book is available at our bookstore, Planting People, Growing Justice Press and Bookstore. And I'll give you the short link. It's uh, bit.ly, so B-I-T 
period ly backslash and then all caps ppgj books so bitly ppgj books and you can also find all the information training tools blogs on my personal website which is my name artika tyner so a-r-t-i-k-a-t-y-n-e-r.com okay and uh, we'll also include a link to your profile on the uh, podcast site so people can find out more about you now a question personally, I suppose, is uh, one of the things that, that we talk about in this program and that really Leadership Well is about is that leaders are also people and it's important to take care of uh, well-being. So, you know, many of us uh, like yourself are, are so dedicated to taking care of the well-being of community and society really at large. And then to kind of go back to you as an individual, what are some things that, that you do to help fortify yourself, to take care of yourself and to kind of nourish yourself as a leader one of the key things that i do is i pray early and often so i start my day with a proverb and that's one easy way for me to stay organized because clearly you can have one proverb per day i also have a daily devotional that i use it's called the leader's heart by john maxwell i've used that for years so it's a kind of instant replay in my life but i i like the prompts i like the information i think it's very inspiring I also think it's important around your physical health and well-being. So that means walking, getting outside, fresh air, those basic things of just breathing, breathing slowly, breathing in, breathing out all the toxic nature of many of the, the challenges that I face. So I'm, I'm breathing in some peace and wholeness. And then I'm breathing out to let go the trauma of structural racism, of discrimination, of hate even. So I think we have to be very intentional and cognizant. But I'm also aware, I remember, you know, as a young professional, everyone said, okay, you'll find your work-life balance. Mm -hmm. I think that's a decision that you have to make moment by moment, second by second, that sometimes I just cut off the computer and I go spend some time with my family. It's not scheduled. It wasn't anything in particular. Sometimes I get outdoors. You go hiking. You just, you make that decision. Sometimes I go visit our 10,000 lakes. That's what we're known for in Minnesota. So I think it's a bit of a false narrative to really say that there's a work-life balance. I think it's something that you have to do in each moment of reclaiming your time, your history, because that's a cultural history that I carry. And that also means reclaiming my strength. So I remember I was touring um, the Amso River. So that's the river that's the final bath before our enslaved ancestors were, were taken to the slave castles and you know that the transatlantic slave trade we know the story of that and as i was there at the amso river i'll never forget it. i think that was my biggest health and wellness moment of my life as i sat there i thought my ancestors were brutally brutally victimized here i mean their skin was ripped open with the ends of the of the bamboo and they were beaten you know, of course, mistreated. And the reality of it is many of them just did not even live to make it to the shores of America or the Caribbean or Europe. Um, so I could do a whole nother lecture on the transatlantic slave trade. But what I'm really trying to get at is connecting to your ancestral strength. So as I was there, I was just like, this is too much. I, I can't even conceive this right now. I mean, my, my spirit is full. I'm still fighting racial cases personally of individual instances of case law of as a civil rights attorney for my clients. There, there's no way. But then I saw a flicker from the sun that hit the river in a way that I hadn't looked close enough. 
there were little glimmers of hope. There was really gold because we know Ghana is a gold coast. So there are, you know, you could see pieces of gold down there at the bottom of the river. And for me, that was really my hope for the future. And I remember I was going to, I was hitting the post and a feed came up on Instagram and it said, make your commitment to be busy making your ancestors proud. And that's what I'm after. Busy, but yet intentional. Busy, but yet working to be whole, healthy and strong. Wow. <laughs> I have uh, I have tears in my eyes, literally. So moving what you what you share and how beautiful that you experienced that moment and that you made the decisions and choices that you made to follow the path that you have and the intentionality and to pursue the education that you did and and to really to do this work and when i think about how this is an example really have one one person as yourself how you have shifted really helping to shift the course of history and the number if i think about you know i'm sure the number of students that you've had the number of people that read your books senior ted ted talks uh, people that have just been influenced in your life that that ripple effect really going back to the idea of that water you really have shifted history and are shifting history and making our world better so thank you thank you i i received the blessing and we'll continue pressing forward all right for that we are uh, we are all grateful thank you so much for your time for all thank that you, you do Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Well program, produced and hosted by Natalie Buto-Wills. Podcasts and information are available at leadershipwell.com.